Matthew 6, 9 through 13 is, um, in one sense, um, the prayer exercise as well as the message for today. And in one sense, you could think about this message as a very long introduction to the prayer exercise. Um, So the prayer exercise that we've been doing, different prayers, different ways in which we've been praying this time of the year, will be at the end of this long introduction or hopefully just a regular length sermon. We've been talking a lot about change in the past few weeks. And it would not be surprising to find that this is, in fact, a theme in many churches at this time of the year. But today is already February 2nd, which means that unless you're using the Chinese calendar, for many of us, New Year's resolutions are already things of distant memory. Gym membership cards already get stuck somewhere in your wallet, maybe behind the Albertsons card. Um... Bible reading plans get stuck somewhere with the patriarchs, or maybe you're as far along as Exodus, and your plan to become a more patient person in life got ejected when you got stuck in a traffic jam on the five the other day. Um, New Year's resolutions, keeping them, is hard. Transformation is hard. Change is hard. But I was also thinking about change from another perspective. Which is how inevitable it is that we change. Sam made a comment about old pictures last week. And um, I was chuckling to myself because I was imagining all these pictures that I, I've seen of Esther when she was younger. And, and Cal- she had the California 80s big hair. She was about five inches taller. Um, just the hair alone was five inches taller. Um, about how silly we looked and we thought we were, we, you know, when we thought we were being so cool. And that's true. But when I see old pictures of myself, that's not the only thing that comes to my mind. I actually have, you know, you look through old pictures of yourself and there's one thought that almost always comes uh, when I'm being a little bit more thoughtful, I guess. Um, and it's about how much I have changed. I look at these pictures. I look at myself when I was younger and I go, ah. Oh, what was that kid thinking? What was he thinking? I don't know if you do that with me. But I brought some uh, pictures to show you. Uh, just so that I can go through this exercise with you a little bit. And um, I thought about bringing some pictures that I have of you guys. Because some of them are really funny. But I decided, oh, it's just so not fair. I'm not going to do that. Um, I have one picture of someone that's not me, but they're mostly pictures of me. But I was really tempted to bring some of these older pictures that I have of you guys. So um, this, is, this is my point of grace, I guess. Uh, but I brought some pictures to show you. And it's only from the last 14 years, actually, because I was too lazy to dig up the non-digital pictures. So, so some of the other ones are like, this is the highest resolution. And this was like one of the first pictures 14 years ago that you guys, some of you guys may remember... Um, you see the background. This is one of the, probably within the first month that I came down to Orange County in Irvine. And I was preaching to you guys, and somebody just took a shot of that. And so some of you guys may remember that picture. And some of you guys might be thinking, wow, his hairstyle has not changed at all. And if you look back, actually, 10 years before that, it's probably exactly the same as well. And then uh, fast forward another, um, what's this one? This is, okay, this is, 
This is about 2005, I was thinking. This is right before, this is in Colorado, and this is before we had kids. And, and I look at this picture and I go, man, what, first of all, what was I thinking? Um, and I think about just the way I thought about life and the way I, I look at these pictures and I think, how naive I was. How simple and, and, and how my priorities, the th- I thought I had my priorities all set straight and still I was so challenged by some of my priorities. And this is, the next picture is a shot of me after we had the kids, which is very realistic. And... Um, I really don't even know why I have my Hebrew grammar book there, because I guarantee you I was not using it for something, um, especially during that time. So this is probably around 2008, 2000, yeah, 2000, late 2008, 2009. Max is just a baby, so so um, that was me thinking, oh, what have I done, you know? And then this picture, you might recognize me as one of the, this was after we started Cross. And um, someone actually came to church. Stop laughing, Elizabeth. And somebody actually came to church. And I remember this is the picture that they saw. And they said, oh, you really need to change your picture on the website. (laughs) And we changed it afterwards. But I look at these pictures and I think, Man, was I, I was so young. And this is only, I guess, like about seven years ago. Uh, I do have one more picture that I can show you of somebody that's not me. Do you guys want to see it? It is Pastor Sam. This is Pastor Sam when he first started work, working with us. And, and uh, this might have been right after the, the biggest loser challenge that we did, right, Sam? But he, look at his fresh eyes, you know, he's just so happy, and look at him now, no, <laughs> no, so, uh, and so this is already like eight, nine years ago, so we change, so this is one of the things that I look at, and the things that I um, think about when I look at these pictures is, you know, the things that I thought that were so important to me are not they seem silly to me. I am embarrassed. I look at the pictures and I am, am embarrassed by the rough edges. Not, not so much by the pictures. <laughs> Although the one in Colorado, that I'm a little bit embarrassed about that. I know it's just a little bit shocked that I show that picture. Um, and it was high altitude. It was just, you know, just... And the immaturity that's going on inside my head a little bit. I was so... Um, I thought I had it together, and I didn't. And I look at that, and I, and I see that I have grown. I have changed. And I hope many of you guys would agree in some ways, hey, Pastor Jen, you have changed. Some of the changes have been better. Yeah, Pastor Jen, you're, you, are, you are not as dumb as you were, or something like that. You might even say, Pastor Jen, I can see you growing to be just a little bit more like Christ. And... I would, say, I would make an argument for that. Now, I am also self-aware enough to know that I have probably changed in some negative ways as well. I just can't see those things as easily. Maybe I am more stubborn. Maybe more set in my ways. Maybe I am more sensitive to certain things. Maybe I am 
more jaded in certain ways. There's a multitude of ways in which a life can take a sour turn, right? And I know I am not immune to them. And as I look around, I really believe this is actually true of all of us. We have all changed in many ways. And it's not just some people for the better and some people for the worse. All of us have changed in both good ways and also probably in some bad ways. You have all changed, even in the time that I've known you. So the question is not whether we will change, but how we will change, right? Change itself is inevitable. So there is nothing strange or wrong about coming back year after year and hoping that we would change for the better. The theme of change is something we see play out in Scripture all the time. In fact, from the moment that God established a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 by saying, I will make you into a great nation. And at that point, they were not a great nation. They were neither great nor a nation. But from that moment, the story of the people of God becomes a story of change. A story about God taking this group of people and changing them into a people who will reveal his heart and his will to the world. So the is a story of change. This journey of change is not without its ups and downs. It's no less than Apostle Paul, right, who says this. He said, I don't get myself sometimes, he says. I don't get myself sometimes. There are good things I want to do, I wind up not doing. And there are these bad things that I don't want to do that I wind up doing. Are you feeling his frustration? The prophet Jeremiah put it brilliantly like this about people who struggle with change, about the people of God. He says, can a leopard change its spots? Can a leopard change its spots? So if any of us want to change this year, we will need to have a new approach. That's where we're going today. What's our strategy for change? And what does Jesus have to say about it? Because listen, folks, we will change in the coming year. We will change in the coming year. It is not a matter of if, but of how. So how do we go about doing that so that one year from now, when we sit with one another at church, we will be people who are more faithfully reflecting the heart of God, the grace of God in our world That's what we're going after. How do we make that change in the way that reflects God in our lives better, more faithfully, more fully? And I was... um, So in one sense, to give you a little bit of a connection, this is a little bit of a part two of the message that I gave about three weeks ago. Uh, that talked about letting go as a first step of change. If we want to really see change, God requires for us to let go. This is a sermon. This is a message about moving forward. This is a message about how then do we make those changes. Uh, And there is a helpful category that I want to introduce to some of you guys. I've already known this, but I want to introduce this category to you guys. And um, it's by a professor. this professor uh, at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, uh, government 
uh, named Ronald Heifetz. He's been very popular recently, and he, he has done a lot of work on the topic of how people deal with change. And he draws this helpful distinction between what he calls technical change and adaptive change. Technical versus adaptive. Technical changes are changes that can take place, uh, take, take place rather quickly because you already have the resources to be able to deal with this sort of change. You just have to figure out how to apply them in the situation or how to work harder to make this uh, situation work. So last Saturday, Young and I did a bike ride in the Santa Monica Mountains in Malibu, and there was a point at which I got a flat, and it's a problem. It derailed me in one sense, but I knew how to fix a flat, and I have the tools to do it. So a little while later, I got going again. That is a technical change. I was able to resolve it relatively quickly with the resources that I had, and I was able to put those things together and find a solution. So most work problems that we encounter, most work issues, um, how to do something that is part of your work is a technical change. Um, getting a good grade on a subject is a matter of technical change for most of us, right? Heifetz distinguishes technical change from another kind of change he calls adaptive change. And adaptive change is a bit trickier because it challenges some of our deeply held assumptions or a value that we've been living with, and we have to learn new things in order for us to deal with this sort of a change. Adaptive change is a little bit like uh, my dad was... um, diagnosed with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, diabetes in this past year. And he had, to make a big, he had to make big changes in his life, right? And the change of um, that nature is not simple as changing a tire. If you know someone who develops diabetes, they tell you what? They, you can't eat certain foods. Stay off the red meats. And they also tell you, you must eat... Um, Little tiny meals, many times throughout the day. Because you eat several small meals uh, because big meals will cause a spike in the sugar level that is so bad for someone uh, with diabetes. But eating small, tiny meals multiple times a day for my dad is torture. Because he grew up in a culture where when you sit down to eat, You're supposed to eat until you're full. You're supposed to eat until you're so full that they encourage you to take a nap afterwards, right next to the table if you want. That would be a sign of a good meal. Um, And for like 20 years of his life, he was the sole proprietor of a candy store where he wouldn't eat all day and then eat a big meal when he got home. So this was big meals, big, satisfying, full meals. That was his life. But diabetes was his new reality, and he had to adjust adaptively. In order for him to do this, he has to address the underlying assumptions about what makes a good meal. Think about that, because this is something that we kind of, you know... um, Prize. Some people live for good meals. And whether he will value longevity and health over a nice sizzling steak or kalbi in his case. 
Or when he chooses... When he chooses wellness as a superior value, will he be able to change his behavior in a way that will cause him to lose his weight, the excess sugar and all that stuff? Now, Heifetz's conclusion is that we cannot create adaptive change using technical means. Trying to do so won't lead to change. It will lead to frustration. So many of you guys can understand now the concept of adaptive change that we need to make. Uh, some people have made changes about getting healthy. You guys are at different places in terms of your health, and you have to make a lifestyle change. When you talk about a lifestyle change, you're talking about changing adaptively. It's not just doing something, one thing better and harder. You have to make entire way in which you make choices and decisions different in your life. Um, Getting married is an adaptive change. And this is why it's so, it's, it's so hard sometimes doing premarital counseling um, during that time because you try to explain the adaptive change that will happen to people who haven't experienced that adaptive change. What does it mean for two to become one? And marriage will become a frustration if you think of it mainly as, oh, we just have to figure out how to fit our needs and our goals together as if we're just living with roommates. No, it's a completely a new world. It requires an adaptive way of thinking. And Heifetz says, look, you cannot create adaptive change using technical means. Trying to do so will only lead to frustration. We cannot achieve the most important changes in our lives, becoming more compassionate, becoming more forgiving, more generous, more patient, more fair, using a quick Fix method. A leopard cannot change its spots. You can only get to adaptive change if you change your mind, your perspective on something that you have been holding dear and close to your heart. This is precisely what we see Jesus doing when we read about his encounters with people in the Bible. Uh, Tim Keller wrote and then um, a, a, a published a book last year called Encounters with Jesus. And it's all stories, um, the sermons that he gave at one point, but stories about encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospel of John. And in almost every single situation, Jesus doesn't lead with, hey, just do this. Let me give you a, a, a little simple tip. All you have to do to become a child of God. All you have to do to become saved is this. He doesn't say that. He doesn't lead with a change. He doesn't say, look, all you have to do is stop doing this in your life. He said, try. He doesn't go at, at the behavioral change, behavioral correction. When he runs into sinners and tax collectors and other people of, of ill repute, he doesn't say, hey, stop and change what you're doing, which is what we want to say when we see people who are struggling with something in their lives, when we see people who have things that are obviously wrong, and then, of course, there's the rest of us who have things that are uh, not so obviously wrong, but are still plenty wrong. But Jesus doesn't lead with, hey, stop doing this one thing, as if the behavior will somehow change the person. He doesn't do that. Instead, he leads with a single phrase or a single word followed by a single phrase generally, which is repent for the kingdom of God is near. What? Does that sound familiar to you guys? That's what Jesus says to a lot of people. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. <clears throat> now, the word repent, 
Now, most of us think when you hear the word repent, you say, well, I know the word repent because I've heard it in church many, many times. It's to feel sorry for your sins. I know what that means. So I don't understand what you're talking about because repent sounds to me like a change in a single behavior, Pastor Jen. But that's not all there is to it. There's so much more to the word repent. And some of them will say, oh, I know, I know, Pastor Jen. It's like, you know, you, you can't just be sorry for your sins. You have to feel bad for your sins. It's like, you know, um, uh, um, a few years ago, I remember, like, Max came up to me, and, and, and he said, he was in trouble, so he says, I'm sorry. And then, like, I said, okay. And then he says, can I play on the iPad? As soon as he says that, I saw, like, Lucy rolling her eyes on the side and said, Max! You're not supposed to ask that right after you say you're sorry. You have to wait a little bit. And, and we think that's what we're supposed to do with God. Is like, oh, we, if we really feel bad, we got to, you know, it's like the dumbest thing. It's like any husband knows. It's like as soon as you say sorry to your wife, the next thing you do is not go and say, hey, can I watch some TV? It's like we get it with God. We're supposed to do that with God as well. It's like, no, it's got to be a little bit more than that. Because if this is the extent to which we, intend, we understand what repentance is, if saying I'm sorry with a downcast face and then kind of just, you know, waiting for the, the required time, if that's, what, that's all that it takes to get into heaven, and if, and if all that it means to repent without changing our assumptions about life, then it can only lead to frustration. Because left to our own devices, we are a leopard that cannot change its spots. Left to our own, we are stuck trying to will our lives into order by technical means. When a deep adaptive change is needed, it just doesn't work. And we know this and we have experienced this. Now, thankfully, the word repent means something much more than that. And I'm going to have to go into the Greek a little bit to help you with that. The original word... um, that Jesus uses is this Greek word metanao. Say that with me just so that I don't feel so alone. Metanao. Okay, so you could hear the word meta, and, and you know, meta, we, people say it in so many different ways, you know, people say like, oh, that's so meta nowadays. But here it really means movement a little bit, and it says, implies what it's trying to say is change. So meta is a prefix that says change. But the word now, N-O-E-O, in the Greek, from which we get the word know, as in knowledge, thinking, mind. So the actual Greek word that Jesus uses, repent, implies, first and foremost, a change in mind, a change in perspective, a change in how you think about, at the fundamental level, about life, very understanding of what life is all about. And the phrase that Jesus follows with it, for the kingdom of heaven is near, kingdom of God is near, clarifies that this change we must undergo in its core is a change into the kingdom of God. Change from one perspective that thinks about us being at the center of the universe to God being at the center of the universe. So can a leopard change its spots? Not unless it first changes its kingdom. Not unless it first changes the vision it has for its life. Not unless we understand that it doesn't require just one, two, three, 
for little changes or we just work harder. But rather, it changes that we wholesale let go of our old kingdom or old ways of thinking and we're grabbed and we're beholden by a new vision of what life and what what life and, and, and what reality is all about, right? That's the sort of change that you cannot work yourself into, right? But it's the sort of a change that we have witnessed as well. And we've seen this. This is not like this impossible thing. We have seen this sort of change happen in small ways and in big ways amongst us and, and probably in your life as well. And it's important for us to understand that. Do you guys remember doing the backpack project a few years ago? Gene and Lucy led uh, uh, the project for us in which we bought a bunch of backpacks. Everybody signed up to buy uh, backpacks and and, uh, school supplies to fill them with. It was a real cool project for kids that were living in motels. Uh, Well, uh, there was this really precious thing that happened for me for us as, as parents during that time because of this event. And I know many other parents experience um, similar things and shared stories, uh, similar stories w- with me. Um, uh, we had asked Lucy to help pick out some backpacks to, to, to give away. And the idea was so strange for her. And Esther was explaining and, and at the time at Target that, that she would... She, Took her and she told me this, how it was such such a hard concept for her that she said, "Why would I pick out a backpack and not keep it? I do not understand." And then Esther had to explain to her that there were some kids who didn't have backpacks and that who couldn't afford backpacks. And of course, that was a foreign concept for her as well because she just couldn't understand why some kids would not have backpacks. Do not do don't all people. Aren't they all born with backpacks? That was basically her assumption. She's never had a life without a backpack. That's what she say, is saying. And I started to explain to her that there were some kids who didn't have backpacks. And that God delights in us sharing what we have with those who do not. And this is a similar experience for many of you parents when you guys had to exp- explain this to your kids as well. And this, that was such a precious moment because there was this moment of realization. This is this time this is where, where something clicked and connected for Lucy at that time. And I will treasure that moment because it helped her to see that there was a kingdom. That there was a, a vision of a kingdom. And doing this small little thing, it helped her to see something in a big way. A new reality. An adaptive change. Not just kind of saying, no, you should do this because it's a good thing for you to do. And for her to maybe try to keep up with her willpower or willingness to come across as a generous person. No, for her to connect with a new reality that said, we are ruled by a God who loves to give things away. And we have been the beneficiaries of that. So why would it not make sense within that kingdom for us to now give things away as much as we can to others who do not have. The point is, 
We don't get people to release their grip on stuff by saying, just try harder. We don't get people to release their grip on things by saying, hey, it's a good thing and you should really, really just keep on doing it because people will think that you're a good person for doing it. We do it by reminding them of the greater vision of reality of which we are part of. We're a good, gracious, loving, caring God gives to us his best, right? Let me give you another example. Some of you guys remember um, Pastor Felix? Thank you. Okay. He came to our retreat a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and he gave us a message. And um, he's from a, a, and in fact, long, long time ago, he actually spoke for us at church, at the the other church. And... uh, uh, he doesn't really put it out there as much these days. And, and it's hard to um, see this sometimes because he's such a Bible geek and he comes across as such a Bible nerd. And I don't think he would, be mind, he would mind for me you know, to hear that I'm calling him a Bible geek, a geek and a Bible nerd um, because he is. So I think he would own it quite easily. But he doesn't put it out there. But this is someone who has had an incredibly difficult life. Um, that when he was younger, he was involved in gangs and drugs. And at one point, he spent time in prison because he stabbed a man in a fight. And, and by all means, he, would have, he should have died himself. Well, yesterday, and he posted this on his Facebook. He says, awkward divine moments with a little phrase that says, awkward divine appointments. And he says that he was at a restaurant in his old neighborhood while visiting his dad when in walks this guy that he had stabbed 20 years before in a fight. So Felix, he prays at his table and he walks over to the guy and introduces himself because the guy doesn't recognize him. And he says, I caused you great harm in the past. Please forgive me. And the guy smiles. And the guy laughs. And you can see the scar that he gave him on his face. Folks, there is no line that connects these two versions of Felix. Between a guy who is willing to stab a man... To a man who willingly asked for forgiveness. To a person that wasn't even expecting it. You could only make this journey if you have changed your kingdoms. If you changed your vision of life. You could only make this journey if you have completely let go of the past. In order to embrace a different kingdom. We don't, we don't grit our teeth and force ourselves to act with compassion. We, first, we have to choose a kingdom where we understand the ways in which God's compassion has been given to us. Then we embody compassion. We don't will ourselves to patience until it makes us blue in the face. First, we choose a kingdom where we can trust God's timing and His faithfulness. Then we are free to slow down 
to live a new rhythm, to embody patience in our lives. We don't force ourselves to practice forgiveness, whether we ask for it or give it, because we hear it's the right thing to do. No, we first choose a kingdom, the very existence of which is possible because God has so freely forgiven us then we can freely and wholly exercise forgiveness in our lives. See, we don't just change. First, we choose a kingdom. We will be changed by the kingdom we choose. Folks, we will be changed by the kingdom we choose. Now, this also means... That we could only choose one. To choose one, we must deny the other. We must surrender one to live in another. Jesus isn't all that interested in our incremental changes. <laughs> to simply being nicer and more agreeable. All the while maintaining our own little kingdoms. We're called to a new kingdom. And as difficult and as painful as this may be, we have to leave our own self-interest. We have to leave our old little kingdoms behind. And what does this alternate kingdom look like? We all have them. What does this alternate kingdom look like for you? If you're unaware or if you're unsure, a good place to start might be taking a little inventory of your heart. Think back over this past year. Think back just over the past year, just in case your memory fails you as, as much as it fails me nowadays to try to think back more than, a, more than a year back. And ask yourself, what is it that has changed you in this past year? What is it that has changed you in this past year? I got in touch with a, um, one of my old youth group friends via Facebook again, of course. And we were good friends in high school. Um, but obviously we lost touch for over 20 years and we got reconnected. But as we were catching up and as I was looking through his pictures and I was looking through um, his information about himself and the things that he, he posts, it struck me that pretty much everything referenced his work. Pretty much everything referenced his work. I asked how he was, and he told me about his work and how busy he was. Uh, I looked at his pictures, and there were many pictures of the places and functions that he traveled to and, and participated in because of his work. And I can see by the way he cut his hair and uh, the way he dressed in the pictures that his work indeed defined his casual life as well, right? See, that's the thing about alternate kingdoms. They don't just distract us from the, uh, uh, the greater kingdom. They don't just distract us. They consume us, and then they control us, and then they change us. Now, for you, it might be something other than work. But that's the problem with all alternate kingdoms, they consume us. And the first step in embracing the kingdom of God in our lives, the first step 
in becoming part of God's kingdom as the definitive reality in our lives is to recognize the kingdoms that have a hold, that, are, that we're already bound to. First step is to see those things that are consuming us. Tim Keller put it in his book like this, and, and the prodigal God like this. He says, It is only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord that you're on the verge of becoming a Christian indeed. When you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, you are on the brink. If you follow through, it will change everything. How you relate to God, the self, others, the world, your work, your sins, your virtue, it's called the new birth because it's so radical. So the question for you right now is to consider this very carefully. What has changed you? What has been changing you? Is it your job? Is it your self-image to come across a certain way? Is it your need for people's approval? Once we understand the change, once we understand change requires us to choose a new kingdom and change requires us to lose a kingdom, then change becomes a matter of of practice. We have to practice everyday ways of choosing God's kingdom over and over again, over and above our own. So finally, this is where our text comes in. I told you this was a long introduction. Right? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he instructed them with these words. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This was Jesus' way of having his followers choose the kingdom of God over and over again. Don't forget it. Remember it. In the day-to-day moments of your life, don't forget it. Whatever little kingdoms that you have been pursuing, it's not anymore going to be about that. Your life is going to be about the kingdom of God your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. So pray that prayer, that prayer that will help us remember. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Dallas Willard talks about practices like this as disciplines that enable us to do the thing we cannot yet do. Let me say that again because this is actually really helpful for us to remember what these practices do. To pray over and over again, your kingdom come, your will will be done. He says, practices like these are disciplines that enable us to do the things we cannot yet do. And I have to tell you, what I did was, and this is, the prayer exercise now. This week, I set the alarm on my phone every day at noon to go off. And when it goes off, except for Sunday, so because otherwise it would have rang about 15 minutes ago. And every day at noon, when that 
the tediousness and the stress and the pressure of your, your day has tempted you to reverse the change. And when you're tempted to think of your little kingdom as the most important kingdom, for you to hear that alarm. And I prayed the Lord's Prayer very, very simply. Thinking about the words, thinking about what it means for me to say and confess, Our Father, who is in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me rely on you now to give us this day our daily bread. Help me to forgive my debtors as you have forgiven me. Now, I will tell you, the first time that this alarm went off, it kind of shook me because it was just like, I'm like, why is my phone going off? Because I didn't realize it was at noon and I um, had a bad choice of ringtones. It was just kind of like too annoying and it did not put me in the mood. And it took me about 30 seconds to realize, oh, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, to start to say that prayer. So I have a little bit of a way to go. Eventually, with some practice at choosing the right kingdom and the right tone for the alarm, these words will become engraved in my heart, and I hope that you would practice this as well. And I want to encourage you guys to do this because I found it incredibly helpful. I found it incredibly meaningful for me, especially as I was praying for um, the Lees, especially as I was praying for the things in my life, especially as I was praying for the things that I was experiencing in that day. And the words that we sometimes say by rote too much that, because, that, that sometimes get so emptied of meaning, I found so much meaning. And eventually, with some practice, these words will become part of us. And anytime we walk into a coffee shop or a store or we walk into a classroom or as we walk into a meeting or at work, or attempted to take a shortcut, the easy way out, we will have a vision for the kingdom. And we will have on our lips this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. And eventually we'll be able to do things that we cannot yet do. Because eventually we will change, not because we are trying so hard, not because you have greater willpower, but because the kingdom not only is, is something that we choose, but actually the better way and the theologically truer way of saying this might be that the kingdom chooses you. It may seem small and insignificant to a world so consumed by your own kingdom, but the reverse is actually true. It is a kingdom, and it cannot be contained When we choose the kingdom of God, it will change us. And the result is life. The result is hope. The result is reconciliation. The result is God's grace. And all of which will spill out into this harsh and dying world. So as we close, I want to ask for you guys to do this with me. To begin today, or... After this, for you to maybe set this as something that you set up in your alarm as well. Now think about it. If 
you just put it at noon, that's fine. It may interrupt something, but no one else has to know. No one else. But you will know that you have now broken into your day that this prayer in which we confess that God's kingdom will be here and his will will be done, that has now broken into your day and will spill over into every aspect of your life. So, would you all pray with me this prayer? And after this, we'll take time in a communion. Would you join me now? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.